So before we get into repentance, I want you to think for a second about a sin that you've fought or been fighting. Um, Maybe it's anger, maybe it's contentment, maybe it's lust. Those are the ones that came to mind for me as I was thinking about this. You know, when when you're in small group, I think a lot of times we'll go through the sin core question and and most of the men in my small group will share the same thing. Um, we've been fighting the same sin for years. Um, and so why, why do we keep going back to that sin? Why, why has it become our quote-unquote pet sin? Um, and what does repentance look like with that sin? Um, there's the easy answer where we feel like, okay, we need to turn from our sin and, and walk away from it and confess it and all of the things we know about repentance. But I think there's something much more deep that we need to be thinking about as we, we turn from our sin and as we look at it. And so I want to look really closely at what repentance looks like as a broad stroke. Um, this isn't a new concept to us. We're all here today. We've been in the church for a long time. I think every single one of us could define repentance. Um, we've heard that it's to completely change our mind and to turn 180 degrees from our sin towards God. Um, it's a change in our thinking and our behaviors. Uh, and 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a beautiful example of this. And so turn to 2 Corinthians we're going to spend our entire time in chapter 7, and we're going to look at the, the church at Corinth and how they repented um, as an example for us to see how we need to approach repentance. So you can see in your notes there's a timeline there. Um, I think this is actually really helpful in kind of laying the groundwork for this chapter. Um, Paul stayed in the church in Corinth for 18 months during his second missionary journey. 18 months is a long time to be with the church. He saw life there. He saw babies being born. He probably buried people and did funerals. He watched the entire church come to Christ. Um, He watched that church grow. He shepherded them for 18 months. And he ended his second missionary journey and began his third and then settled in Ephesus. Um, He wrote a letter back to the church at Corinth that was lost. Um, And then the Corinthians wrote him back some clarifying questions. And that's what what became, his answer to that became 1 Corinthians, what we have today. Um, And then he learned that there were false teachers among them and confronted them. And he describes, you can see there, it's about midway through the bullet points, in 2 Corinthians 2.1, a painful visit where he confronted the false teachers. And they stood with the false teachers and not with him. So after 18 months together, false teachers came amongst the church at Corinth, and they ended up following them instead of Paul. I can't imagine what the heartbreak was for Paul where he had this church that he'd lived with for so long, and then they turned away from him and listened to false teachers. So he wrote a third letter 
delivered it by Titus, and it caused the church at Corinth great sorrow. Um, that letter was also lost. But Paul was comforted by Titus's report. And here we are in 2 Corinthians, reading through Paul's response to that comfort. And so I'm going to read the, um, the whole context, starting in verse 5. And we'll hear about Paul's response to um, Titus's report of his, him bringing the third letter. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. See, Paul wasn't in a good place when he got comforted with the coming of Titus. And his coming, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort for which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. That's a complete change from their response to him when he confronted the false teachers. And such extreme um, adjectives, their longing, their mourning, and their zeal. So that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer any loss and suffer loss in anything through us, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. The Corinthians had abandoned their pastor and apostle when he confronted the false teachers before them. When Paul wrote that third letter delivered by Titus, confronting them for abandoning him. There was not yet at that time any evidence of repentance. It wasn't until Titus returned that Paul learned the effort of his words in that third letter, the lost one. It caused them sorrow, and that's what we read in 6, and seven, six through 8. There were attitudes that Titus could, see, could discernibly see and measure in them that indicated they were repentant. The relational strife was mending. 2 Corinthians 7 is a description of their solid repentance and what it looked like. This isn't distant generalities. We have a great example of uh, many people who turned away from someone, turned towards their sin, and then turned away from their sin and back towards God. And so we're going to look today at eight marks of godly repentance. Um, And most of the time we're going to spend on godly sorrow the first mark. Uh, so if you're, if you're keeping up, this is where the first build discipline discussion is. We're just going to spend a lot of time on godly sorrow um, and talk through that. And so um, if you look at this passage, sorrow is mentioned eight times 
eight times in basically three verses. Um, sorrow was important to Paul as he talked about what the Church of Corinth's repentance looked like. So in reality, that tells me it's not really just one of the eight marks, um, but it's kind of an underlying or overarching theme to what repentance looks like. Um, let me read uh, verses 6 through 10 one more time. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, sorrowful but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So I have five ways that sorrow acts for the repentant sinner. Um, I don't think your notes has enough room for mine. <laughs> you might want to flip the page over. Um, five ways that sorrow acts, godly sorrow acts for the repentant sinners. Um, the first one is godly sorrow points to repentance. You can see that in verse 9. It's very clear. It says sorrowful to the point of repentance. Um, genuine repentance will inevitably involve sorrow. It must. I touched on the extremes in verse 7. Um, there's zeal, there's rejoice, there's mourning, there's longing. These emotions are strong as it relates to sin. And there's a sorrow that we can rejoice over, a sorrow that leads us to the destination of repentance. Notice that sorrow isn't the goal. Our goal in looking at our sin isn't to be sorrowful. Our goal is repentance. And sorrow is the road. So I love going to San Diego. I try to go there as much as I possibly can, especially when it's like 150 here. Um, if I want to go there, I take I-8 for like 300 miles. And then I get to San Diego. My goal is the beach. But the road is I-8. Um, our goal is repentance. And the path and the road to get there is sorrow. We need godly sorrow if we want genuine repentance. And so what is godly sorrow? What does that look like? Um, I think every single one of us, when we've wronged someone else, has said, I'm sorry. And, and yet I don't know that we've really been sorry. So my second way that godly sorrow acts is it does not act like guilt. Godly sorrow is not guilt. And I think we get these two mixed up quite a bit. I think we feel guilty, um, and sometimes we don't feel sorrow about our sin. Uh, feeling guilty is being aware of our guilt, being aware that we did something wrong, and we feel guilty. 
And you can feel guilt to the point of sorrow and also not have godly sorrow. Judas was sorrowful, but that wasn't godly sorrow. I think godly sorrow is a good example of that is Peter. So let's jump over to Luke 22 and read about Peter's response to his own sin. We're looking at Luke 22 and starting in verse 54, which explains why verse 24 doesn't have anything to do with it. Let me look at verse 54. One of these days I'm going to break down and start wearing reading glasses, but not yet. Verse 54, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to those to the house of the high priest, him being Jesus. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with Jesus too. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know Jesus. A little later, another saw Peter and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began insisting, Certainly this man also was with Jesus, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are speaking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You want to know how I know this is godly sorrow and not guilt? Peter was repentant. John 21 tells us that Peter would die a martyr, and history indicates that he did. So when it came down to it, at the end of the day, he stood for Christ. But in this moment, he didn't, and he was heartbroken about it. If you want true repentance, it's going to be sorrowful getting there. Which this, this requires a right view of your sin. So let's look at another example. Let's look at Nathan um, when he brought David's sin up to him. So turn to 2 Samuel 12. This really is one of my favorite sections in Scripture. I forget that it's one of my favorite sections in Scripture until I go back to it. I'm like, man, I love this confrontation. Um, I love the way Nathan brought sin to David in a way that just put on full display how deep David's sin was. Um, And so let's read verses 1 through 13 of 2 Samuel 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over the thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more thi- things like these. Why have you despised the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. In verse 5 and 6, David started to understand his sin. He saw the analogy and was ready to to, um, punish the person who had done something similar to what he had done. And then in verse 7, when Nathan says, David, you are the man, David's temperament changed. He thought his sin was done in private, and Nathan just laid it out before him. I promise you that David felt guilt for the years leading up to this. In verse 7 through 12, David's guilt turned to sorrow. In verse 13, David's repentance is boiled down to five biting words from a man with full knowledge of his own sin. I have sinned against Yahweh. Sorrow under repentance is the sorrow that God is after, and that is the sorrow that God is pleased with. That is, sorrow according to the will of God. Is the sorrow that you experience on your way to genuine repentance. So the goal is to not merely be sad when you have sinned. The goal is repentance, and you will be sorrowful on your way there. That is the sorrow that operates according to the way God works. I think when I recognize that I'm sinful, and by God's grace, I don't see all of my sin on full display, but he unpeels the layers, the onion of our sin. Um, I don't know that I have the perspective that David had and say, I've sinned against Yahweh. I think if I did, I would look at my sin a whole lot differently. And I think that's what we need to be doing. We need to have a better view of our sin and what the destruction is. Sin done in private is not sin that we can get away with. Um, We are sinning against Yahweh. The third way that godly sorrow acts for the repentant sinner is that godly sorrow has no loss. Um, Going back to 2 Corinthians 7, um, and at the end of verse 9, he says, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. 
When the world is sorrowful, it is usually because they have lost something they love. But God's sorrow, the sorrow of repentance, suffers no loss. Through us puts the emphasis on the horizontal concern Paul has. When a believer repents, it is not evidence of loss at all. Um, I'm not going. If you look at the beginning, there's rejoicing, and at the end, there's no loss. Yet where there's joy and no loss, there is sorrow. The only way they would have had suffered loss would be if they had not repented. And verse 10 there explains how there is no loss in this sorrow and that sorrow that's under repentance. A believer has no regrets in turning from their sin. We, a, a true believer looks at their sin and, and doesn't want it anymore. If we have godly sorrow, we look at our sin through God's eyes. You do not see your sin as something you miss or long for. There are no good old days through the eyes of a repenter. Let me say that again. Godly sorrow looks at our sin through God's eyes. You don't see your sin as something you miss or something you long for, and there are no good old, good old days through the eyes of a repenter. I have experienced buyer's remorse a lot. I have a tendency to buy something and then be like, yeah, that wasn't that great. Um, there's no such thing as repenter's remorse. When we turn from our sin, we learn to hate our sin. We don't, we don't look at our sin and say, oh man, those were the good old days. That was when I was really having fun. Remember when I had fun before I was a Christian? <laughs> now it's hard. That, that's not what a true repenter looks like. Um, we hate our sin. And so in getting true repentance, you really have only gained because you're rejoicing over what you get, the Lord of the universe. You get to serve the Lord of the universe instead of feed your sin. And our sin never really satisfied, did it? You always chased it more and more and wanted more and more. Whether it was contentment, you're always discontent. If it's lust, you're always lusting after something new. Um, Sin doesn't satisfy, but the Lord does. The fourth way that godly sorrow produces repentance is that it brings good. This is sorrow that you want. That's counterintuitive. Um, But it's sorrow you can rejoice over. A sorrow you only gain from and never lose from. A sorrow you'll never regret. That is the sorrow that you experience when you're in genuine repentance. The world has its own sorrow, and it's the opposite of good sorrow. The world's sorrow leads to death, and it says there um, at the end of verse 10, this isn't sorrow of the world, that produces death. So what is the world's sorrow like? Sorry it got caught? We've all said that to our kids. You're not sorry, you're just sorry that I caught you. Um, Or at least I've said it to my kids. We're, the world is sorry that it's losing its pet sin. There's no strain of joy in their sorrow, no sweetness in their bitterness, only regret. This sorrow is the evidence that the, that the worldly one lost something, suffered a loss, the sin he did not want to give up yet. Our prisons are full of people that way. 
This is a dangerous sorrow, and it produces death. The, there is a blessed sorrow, though, and that one leads to resist, repentance. Um, but it's not the sorrow of the world. So there's a lot of biblical examples of this sorrow. Look at Cain. He was grumbling that his consequence was too hard to carry. He wouldn't repent of his hatred and murder. Look at King Saul. He was wounded. Um, his pride was wounded, and he no longer had the favor of God. But he wouldn't turn from his spiritual defection. The sorrow of King Ahab, despondent, self-pity, when he wouldn't get in Naboth's vineyard, but he wouldn't repent of his covering coveting. And as we said earlier, Judas, overwhelmed by his betrayal of the son, wept bitterly, but wouldn't return to Christ and instead committed suicide. I was listening to a podcast by a non-believer. He's a recovering drug addict or whatever, um, and has been clean and sober for years. But when you hear him talking to people about their drug habit, you can see he longs for that day. He misses that day. He's trying to talk other people, oh man, you've got to do mushrooms. They were so great. It was so much fun. Like He still loves his sin. He is sorrowful that he isn't doing drugs anymore. Um, that's not repentance. That's a worldly turning from a sin that he knows is going to kill himself, so he doesn't want to kill himself, and so he's just not doing it anymore. But he loves it. He's holding on to it. That's the world's version of repentance, and that leads to death. Christians do not look at their sin with longing. They look at their sin for what it is, and they say, I have sinned against Yahweh. The fifth and final way godly sorrow acts for the repentant sinner is godly sorrow produces repentance, humility, and unity. I think I just didn't want to have seven ways, so I turned this one into one. Um, And so, godly sorrow produces repentance, humility, and unity. When true repentance comes, you will know, because you will have a sorrowful heart that is also joyful. And it's joyful to not be going any longer in the direction that your sin had you. A sorrow won't regret turning from sin. That won't leave you feeling like you've lost anything, but you've only gained. It's a sorrow that gives you evidence of the salvation you've been enjoying, a sorrow that is in alignment with God's will. Um, True repentance um, is just such a joy. And you'll be humbled. Humbled. You'll be sorry your sin sin tarnished your Savior's, Savior's good, holy name and reputation. You'll be sorry your sin... Let me see if I can say this again. You'll be sorry your Savior savior suffered greatly on the cross, and it cost him greatly. You'll be sorry your fellowship with him was obstructed and hindered by your sin, and you'll be sorry you dishonored his word and command. When you're caught in sin and holding on to your sin, do you find it harder to go to God's word? I find it really hard to pray when I'm clinging to my sin, because I don't want to be open with God. I don't want to have that relationship with God that I have normally um, because I know I'm being hypocritical with him. Uh, When I repent of my sin and I'm clinging to him, my time in God's word and my time in prayer is so much more sweet. 
We need to be humbled. We need to have humility. And we need to go to God's word and pray. If you have godly sorrow, it'll help you restore broken relationships and bring about unity. You'll be sorry you hurt others and hindered unity and fellowship with them. There are no sins that that protect you from relationships. Sins in secret are still sins against others and will damage relationships. You'll be sorry that your sin gave unbelievers cause to mock God. This kind of suffering, sorrow, suffers no loss when sin is turned from. This kind of sorrow has no regrets. This kind of sorrow points to genuine genuine salvation. So Christian, when you say I'm sorry, you're not giving a platitude to try to clean up a conversation. Um, You should be saying, I feel godly sorrow for how my sin has damaged my relationship with whomever you sinned against. And that sin put my Savior on the cross. I am sorry that as a redeemed believer in Christ, I still treasure myself and things of the world more than my Savior. I want to run from the world and towards my Savior. That's what saying I'm sorry means. So that that's really what this passage teaches us about godly sorrow. But it's not all that this passage teaches us about repentance. Um, That's point one. So, half hour. Um, Yeah. Can you repeat the five points? Yeah. I can. Godly sorrow points to repentance. Point one. It does not act like guilt. It has or suffers no loss. Godly sorrow brings good. That's point four. And it produces repentance, humility, and unity. Did I go through those too quickly again? I think um, I think I'll get to this a little bit in a minute, but godly sorrow really needs us to view our sin rightly. Um, we're not going to get to godly sorrow if we don't understand how how we've sinned against a holy God, and we're not going to understand how we sinned against a holy God if we don't understand who God really is. Um, I highly encourage you to be in Psalms as much as you can. Um, Psalms is such a good book to just tell you about who God really is. Um, I know one year, I think I mentioned this here before, one year during our family vacation I went through Psalms and just highlighted every single time when in that book God's attribute was defined an attribute of God was defined or he was talked about or something. And the whole book of Psalms is just highlighted in that Bible that I took that year. Um, And it's been so good to be able to grab that Bible off the shelf when I'm struggling with sin and just scan through all those highlights uh, and to be able to go and look at my Savior. Uh, I think it was C.J. Mahaney that said, 
a quote that's rung in my ears for about 20 years, which is, it's hard to be sinful and prideful when you're sitting at the foot of the cross. When you look at who God is, um, you will have sorrow for your own sin and for your position. And that's the groundwork to having the humility to be able to turn from your sin. All right. Eight marks of godly repentance. Number two. Remember in this section, what we're doing is we're looking at the, how the Corinthians repented as a model for our own. So most of this is going to be discussion um, with uh, just the Corinthians' repentance. And so number two is earnestness. You can see that in verse 11. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Um, Earnestness, as you have in your notes, is a persistent striving to correct a pattern of sin. It's kind of an umbrella idea over the rest. It casts its flavor and its shade over the rest. It's that sprinting from sin towards holiness. It is eager and active. The Corinthians once had been unable to move. They couldn't be moved to defend Paul. They were unconcerned to do so, and they believed lies about him. They were inactive then and not eager to defend. But now they are actively eager towards him. They are repentant, eager and active to strengthen, to straighten this all out, earnest to resolve their offense, earnest for what is right. Whatever had them hesitant towards Paul is now gone. A mark of repentance is not some flash in the pan, I don't want to do this anymore, but it is a sustained activity, a move in the direction that you are towards God and away from sin. Earnestness reveals repentance. The third one is vindication. And you can see in um, verse 11 here, he really just goes kind of on a, on a series of, of um, statements where he says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging the wrong. Um, it wasn't very hard to make this list. Uh, I didn't have to dig too deep into this passage to be able to say, okay, here's the, here's the things that are in this passage. Um, but I want to spend some time going through the list and understanding what they all mean. And so vindication, it's a defense consisting primarily of the absence of the sin pattern. The idea of clearing themselves of the guilt of their lack of defense of Paul, their defection. They wanted to remove the stigma of their guilt and blame. Like a son who is eager to clear himself before his dad. Not lying or defending or denying what they did, but by going humbly through confession and acknowledging their wrongdoing. The only way to vindicate yourself when you are guilty is through acknowledging your guilt and demonstrating you are now just the opposite. Vindication reveals repentance. The next one, indignation. As you have in your notes, it's a feeling of anger over your decision to sin. This is a strong word. You could use the word outraged. The Corinthians were outraged over their own sin against Paul. 
They were outraged that they didn't come to his defense. They now hate what they once loved. Outraged defines your disposition towards your sin. They had a disdain for what they had done. And their repentance evidences a radical change in mind towards their sin. Where there was once love for sin, there is now outrage. And that is the radical change you have to undergo to be truly repentant. So when I'm in small group, going back to that fourth core question of sin, um, how do you respond to someone else in the group when they share their sin? I've, I've noticed we tend to empathize, tend to go, oh yeah, we all deal with anger. Let me tell you about some of the times I've had to deal with anger. I don't think we show outrage. I don't think we help each other, at least in my group. Sorry, guys. Um, (laughs) I don't think we help each other really hate our sin. Uh, I don't think we turn to each other and say, man, that is terrible. That is a sin against God, and we need to be indignant towards that sin. Um, I think we need to do a better job. Now I'm just speaking to, I guess, Shag and Nick. Anyone else in my conversation? Next week's going to be really hard. <laughs> but I think we need to approach it differently. Um, I think we try to comfort each other, and that's good. But we don't want to comfort the sin. We want to have we want to have a um, a right view of the sin, and help each other by helping each other have a right view of our sin, and really be outraged about what we, our sin does to God. Um, and there's it doesn't matter what sin it is. I mean, you can look at David's sin and go, "Oh my goodness, that was terrible." Um, you can also curse under your breath at the guy that cut you off, and it's just as terrible. We need to have indignation towards our sin. Amen. Yeah. None of us need instructions on how to be outraged when people sin against us. Right. That's a natural response. No, I'm good at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all are. Right? We all are. And that's not to uh, to mollify the sin, right? But like, let's turn that around and remember that when we sin, whatever that sin is, God is outraged. Yeah. Yeah, that is so... And, and I think we're, we're so quick to try to just dilute our own sinfulness. Um, and yeah, it's tough. And it's important to, to just allow sorrow to be there towards our sin. Like a guy confessing his sin or you confessing your own sin, encouragement is not to drive them away from sorrow and indignation towards the sin. Encouragement is to help foster that because that's what produces repentance. In that, um, you made a point about you know how we empathize with each other. Yeah. Um, and it's good. Yeah we, yeah, we all recognize that sin or relationship or whatever. But you also said, how do you encourage one another to hate to fight it? To, um, and I guess practically, 
What do you guys think? I think that there's, um, I, think, I think similar to what Nathan did, if you can put it into different terms, it helps people tremendously. Um, we, we've, we've had, so a church that I previously was at um, years ago had a sexual relationship in the church that was going on, and we had to confront that. And there were men that were also dealing with pornographic addiction. And the two were compared very differently. Yeah, look, lots of guys have a pornographic addiction. But man, this homosexual relationship inside the church is really awful. And so we had, you know, you you want to you want to be careful because there were men, there were, there were people that were repentant that were that were trying to come out of that addiction. That you don't want to say that you know oh you know they're terrible but what we're trying to do here is we we say hey look just because we're indignant toward toward this this homosexual couple that needs to truly repent and we're trying to press them towards repentance we need to press toward repentance also of of these guys who have this lustful addiction And, and you can say look these are these are comparable let's let's we we need to be indignant toward both and not commiserate with the one and being indignant toward the other. I think that I think that when you, whenever you can take someone's sin and put it into the perspective of something else, where they can see now yeah. the indignance that they should have, I think that, that's helpful. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's just on a personal level. It's like taking that confession, you know, talking to a brother and 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 uh, not leaving it there. You know, just skating over it, but like. Saying, are you like are you indignant? Like are you these things that we're listing? Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you? You know, and I think that that I don't I don't do that enough. You know, but yeah, self and you know, um, someone else do that. You know. So. Well, that's yeah. I don't even think I um like just having the this list as a shorthand, yeah. you know, on one card note card or something in your Bible to be able to go to and say. Okay, I, I see this sin. Let me walk through these things and see, do I have these perspectives towards them? I think that's helpful. I think, I think something else, and, I, and I'm not necessarily good at doing this, but I try to, try, try to do this, is if we, if we talk about our sin, it's easy not to feel indignation and hatred towards our sin when we're not defining our sin biblically. That's so good. So if like, you know, someone shares a small group, you know, I just feel like I... I'm getting frustrated with my wife a lot lately, and I I, I need to stop. I need, okay, well let's let's unpack that. Like, what sins are actually on display when you're going through this feeling of frustration? And oh, you, oh, you're actually angry. Okay, what are you angry about? Because I'm not receiving this. Oh, so there's a lust for something that you want that you're not getting. And you know, if you start to unpack it and realize yeah. the weight of that sin. It makes it easier to have those feelings of indignation. Not, not, not saying that I'm great at it, but I think that's an important first step is let's think through what the Bible says about that in all the various ways that might be 
as we understand the breadth of that sin that we think was this little one, which is actually much bigger than we thought, I think that can kind of help us down that road. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, that's helpful. Um, so the fifth mark of godly repentance is fear. And that's a healthy reverence for the one who is offended by our sin. God, who is most offended by our sin. So what does the fear of God look like? It's worshipful. It arises out of sense of his majestic holiness and the purity of his selfless love towards you. This kind of ties back into what I talked about with Psalms before. Um, If you feel like you're not having a good perspective towards your sin, then I don't think you have a good perspective towards who God is. Uh, And so understanding more of who he is will only nurture a worshipful fear of him. He is so loving, and you fear betraying his love. You are sobered by his holiness, and you are sobered into holiness. When you once had been casual or unconcerned in your sin, where you had no sight of God as you looked on your sin with delight, suddenly you become aware of God in an uncommon way. You see the grotesque evil you are trifling with. Your sin was always this way. But now the scales are falling off your eyes, and you see God in your sin as you should. You have a worshipful fear of the Lord, and that fear does not make you run from God, but it makes you run towards him. And it's a fear that does not make you run away from your offended brother, but towards your offended brother to reconcile. Fear reveals repentance. Uh, The sixth, what longing? That's a strong desire to restore the relationship that has been harmed because of sin. Um, There's a a horizontal aspect to the longing in this. And and you can look at that in the Church of Corinth, where they longed to restore their relationship with Paul. They desired Paul, and they desired reconciling with him, and they yearned to see him. This is a strong, positive affection, and they didn't want distance between them anymore. Um, They they strived for distance between him when he was exhorting the false teachers. And now they recognize that that was wrong, and they want to be near to their pastor. Longing reveals repentance. But I think it was even more than longing. Um... And that's why the seventh one is zeal. I think that's a strong passion. It's motivated by both love and hate. Um, They were stirred up into an an even greater fervor for Paul to give evidence of their repentance. It was an intense desire. They were zealous to comply with anything more that could put their relationship with Paul on solid ground. So they didn't just turn from their sin. They didn't just turn towards Paul. 
they didn't just long for Paul, but they were zealous for Paul and their relationship with Paul. They were zealous to remove every obstacle between them and Paul. So what does this look like with the sin of lust in our spouses? Are you willing to do anything that blesses your wife? What does it look like for single guys in lust? Are you willing to turn from anything that blesses the wife you probably haven't even met? It, this zeal towards God is a strong emotion. Um, and all of these are strong emotions. Um, repentance isn't something to, to just kind of gloss over. Um, I was talking to someone about their sin, and they, they confessed it to me. And I was very discouraged in the conversation because you could just see they didn't hate their sin. Oh. And you, you wanted to, to initiate that hatred for their sin, and you, you can't do it. Like, that's repentance, is, it, it's God that initiates that. And we'll get to that in a minute, but um, you just have to have a strong emotion. If you're looking at your sin and you don't feel strong emotions, then you're not looking at it right. Um, and, you know, we're guys, theoretically, we're more like robots than emotional, but we need to nurture those emotions, especially as it comes towards sin, and, um, and be sorrowful and have zeal for God and strengthen our um, just passion in this whole area. The last way... Um, is avenging the wrong. He says, what avenging of wrong? And so, you know, what you have in your notes there is to apply a consequence that promotes holiness of life. They wanted to avenge what they had done wrong. What an interesting perspective. Like John was saying, we're quick to want to avenge when we've been wronged. But do we really want to avenge our own wrongs? Do we really want punishment for our own sins? You know you're repentant when you do. Um, when you're done defending yourself, done trying to protect yourself, done pitying yourself, and you would rather avenge the wrong you've done, you know you're repentant. I'm going to say that again. When you're done defending yourself and done trying to protect yourself and done pitying yourself and you're avenging the wrong you've done, you know you're repentant. The church at Corinth was ready for justice and ready to bring justice down even though it was going to fall on their own heads. Avenging of wrong reveals repentance. So these marks of repentance are helpful, but I feel like we should end today on some encouragement. Um, biblical repentance is different than worldly change. I talked about the podcast guy, um, and you could look at that guy through a lens and say, well, that guy's repentant. He hasn't done drugs in 20 years. Um, but that's worldly change. That's not repentance. Um, Repentance has a different perspective. There's a different joy that comes. And at the end of the day, um, 
it's, it's a form of worship, and we're worshiping the Lord of the universe. Um, and he's given us provisions to be able to be repentant. And so he's given us many. You go through scripture, that's, that's the gospel, right? Like, the gospel is a heart change and a life change that produces repentance. Um, and so I could go on for 10 more hours just going through provisions in God's word and not even scratch the surface. But today I want to highlight five that I think are helpful. Um, they were the first five that came to mind as I was going through this. A couple of them come direct out of the passage. Um, a couple of them come from our time in Romans over the last five or ten years, however long we've been there. Um, and so I have five provisions from God for a faithful repenter. The first one, man, there's a lot of lists today. Sorry, guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> the first one is uh, comfort and encouragement, and that's in verse 6. So 7, 6, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Being repentant and watching others repent is a huge encouragement. Uh, we talked about that at the very beginning. Uh, when I'm in small group and I hear someone really defeat their sin, like there's been a sin that I've been struggling with for a long time and it's not there anymore. Like I walk away from those small groups super encouraged. Um, not because I've done anything, but just watching God work through someone else is an encouragement. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's comforted and encouraged in a time where he was depressed. He was getting attacked. He said, within and without, I'm being attacked. And yet you came, Titus came, told me of your repentance, and I'm encouraged and I rejoice greatly. Um, watching repentance is encouraging. I think, back to my small group, sorry guys, um, I think we need to spend more time rejoicing over defeats of sin too. Um, Paul rejoiced, uh, and I just think that there's, you know, we'll talk about it and, and talk about sin we're fighting, but do we talk about sin we've conquered um, and be able to rejoice with each other in a conquering of sin? Um, that's a huge encouragement and a provision from God for the faithful repenter. The second provision is innocence, verse 11. Um, the very end there, it says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. This is the crowning affirmation. They had only been guilty before, and now they're innocent. This means a fresh start has come. The guilt is gone, and they are walking now in their relationship with Paul in innocence as far as Paul is concerned. Repentance does this. It brings a new day of relational innocence. This says a lot about how forgiving Paul was. Paul wasn't unnecessarily ruthlessly holding their guilt against them and now trying to extract a pound of flesh. Paul recognized their repentance and looked at them as innocent. He was living by the principle that judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Paul didn't hold the sentence of guilt over them any longer than necessary, and now he's waving his hand over them, declaring them innocent in their relationship. How do you respond when you see your spouse, sibling, family member, roommate repent? Do you hold them, hold it over them for a long period of time? 
or do you claim mark them as innocent in the matter? Um, God's forgiven. We need to forgive. This doesn't mean that there's no correction yet to come in Paul's eyes. You keep reading, he corrects the church at Corinth. Um, he believes they're re- repentant, and he believes they still need some correction. All these show that repentance in relational conflict takes a huge step, a huge leap towards the one we offend. So this is how you'll know when you are repentant in a broken relationship. To claim repentance, but then withdraw from or keep the distance from the person that you sinned against isn't true repentance. You need to leap towards the relationship of the people you sinned against. But sin damages. Paul was gracious with the church at Corinth, but we can not expect everyone that we sin against to be that gracious. And we can't hold that against them. When we repent, we try to restore, and then we trust God with those that have a harder time trusting us again. Um, Sin has consequences, and we need to be able to deal with those consequences. Now, how is it that you as a believer in Jesus Christ can even bear this kind of fruit in keeping with repentance? Uh, that's answered in the next few provisions. Um, number three is a promised victory. Well, let's go to Romans 6. That went way too far. Romans 6, verses 4 through 7 is what we'll be looking at. Therefore, we have been buried, buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We need to keep our promised victory in view as we battle sin. Christ's victory over death and sin enables you victory over sin. Verse 4 says we have the ability to walk in the newness of life. And 6 and 7 says that we're free from sin's rule. When you're discouraged and you are struggling to truly repent, this is a great passage to go to and to remind yourself that God has given us victory over our sin. That we're no longer slaves to our sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. The next provision is we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Turn over a page to chapter 8. Or a swipe. I think it's two swipes if you're on your phone. <laughs> to chapter 8. Um, looking at verses 12 through 14, we can see the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. By his power you can put to death the deeds of the body, and repentance comes through that. Crying out to him for help, power, comfort, you'll have success in your fight against sin. And repentance comes no other way. The last provision is the word. It's scripture. God has given us scripture in our battle against sin. So I'm going to read three verses. You can just write the passages down. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it as not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. God's word performs its work in you who believe. And then in 1 Peter 2.2, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We need to long for the word. That way we can grow with respect to salvation. Um, Colossians 3.16 is the last one. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and spiritual songs and hymns, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell with you. Memorize scripture. Um, A couple of weeks ago we had EKG, the elder care group. We went around the group and shared um, what passage that you have memorized. I can't remember how the question was worded. Name a passage that you have memorized and how you use it to comfort yourself or battle sin. And we went through the group and just like it didn't take long for us to think through what are verses that come to mind when we're sinning um, and when we're battling sin or when we're um, just wanting to strengthen our own uh, walk with Christ. It is so important to memorize scripture, to have that on your mind. Going, oh, I know it says it somewhere, isn't going to just ring in your ears when you're in sin. Um, Taking the time to go know and learn and memorize scripture is so helpful. Um, And this leads to build discipline one. Um, We need to be in the word. We need to be longing for the word. We need to make time for the word. We need to meet with God so that we can have a right perspective of our sin, a right perspective of of our Savior, and turn from our sin towards him. So I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll break up into build groups. Lord God, thank you for your provision in our lives. Lord, thank you for removing a desire for sin from our hearts in many ways, Lord. Sin and things of this world have such a a temporary um, benefit, if it's even a benefit, Lord. Um, And if we we see that and we recognize who you are and the glory that you are, Lord, we will run from our sin. Lord, help us to, to meet with you. Help us to love you more. Help us to see you more for who you are. Help us to see our sin more for what it does to you. Um, help us to, to love you more and love our sin less. Lord, grow sorrow in our hearts towards our sin. Grow a zeal for you. Help us to be able to um, recognize the destructive nature of sin 
and flee it. Lord, help us to serve each other well, to encourage each other well, and to respond well as we battle sin. Um, Lord, thank you for these men, for their perseverance in this class, Lord, and for their desire to honor you, Lord. Uh, bless our time as we meet together in smaller groups. Help that to be fruitful for all of our lives and help it to be clarifying as we talk through um, the things that you've taught us, Lord. In your name, amen.